Welcome back to the Will Be Movies. This is a podcast discussing 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. Volume 3 is the 90s. This is episode 70, Starship Troopers, adapted from the novel of the same name, but with a very different message behind it. As we're going to go kill some bugs on various exotic planets with white people. Joining me for this is Ben Phillips. Ben, how are you doing? I mean, we say adapted. (laughs) really adapted actually i (laughs) not minutes ago i read edward newmeyer who wrote the script was writing an original screenplay called like bug hunt on outpost nine and then someone pointed out the similarities to starship troopers so they just licensed starship troopers and took the name but he is ostensibly or claims to be a fan of the novel which then confuses me because if you actually genuinely like the novel rather than treating it with complete indifference like Paul Verhoeven had the decency to then how do you end up with a work of satire? <laughs> Pure indifference is, is is mildly putting what Paul Verhoeven did but didn't Paul Verhoeven read two chapters of it throw it in the bin and then just make Edward Newmeyer describe the plot to him? Yes, he said it was boring and bad and right wing and he couldn't manage any more than two chapters. I mean, Paul Verhoeven's great. Yeah. A Dutch filmmaker who comes over to America and makes, like, the most violent, the most sexy blockbuster movies of all time, almost all of which are massively critically misunderstood. Like, doing this up front, I think both of us are huge fans of this movie. Mm -hmm. We've got it down as a U-pick, but it was sort of more to boss the numbers of, like, U-picks. Well, this was not something I was going to put forward, but, like, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this movie. You read the reviews of this movie from the 1990s, and you sit there and you kind of scratch your head and say, oh, People really like not understanding the mm-hmm. the nuance of this movie. Like, I think it was um, Roger Ebert's review where he's like, "Oh, there's some fascist satire in this," and I was like, "Some? Like, there's <laughs> fascist satire? Like, <laughs> did you like switch off and like the only bit of fascist satire you noticed was when they go and sign up for the army and there's the guy behind the desk who has both who's got like one arm and both his legs blown off and goes like, oh, I guess being in the army is what made me the man I am today.'" <laughs> I think a more accurate way to describe this movie is there's some war in this satire movie. <laughs> like that, It's probably about 20 minutes too long and it's probably those 20 minutes towards the end where it actually accidentally becomes a genuine sci-fi war movie. And I'm like, eh. I, this amused me when I was like 12, but that's the point where I stopped paying attention when I was re-watching it for this podcast. I was like, okay, I've got it from here. Paul Verhoeven has this like uncanny ability to to thread this needle of, like, he makes, like, a straightforward blockbuster in this movie. Like, this movie cost $105 million. Every single dollar of that money is on the screen. Like, you could not, even nowadays, like, it still holds up. And, like, I think that's because it's in this kind of, like, post-Jurassic Park pre the Star Wars prequels movies where like there's still practical stuff going on they haven't just chucked everyone into a green screen room they've actually filmed this in the desert in places and so they're having to be a little bit like more ingenious with how they deploy the money so like what 20 years on or 25 years on however long it's been like it still stacks up as like a special effects showcase yeah you know you've got like a thousand extras the bugs actually look pretty good for the most part they're firing ammunition and apparently it's like the most ammunition that had ever been used in a movie at this point yeah i mean it's an expensive looking movie and it's there are four sequels to animated to live action the second one cost six million dollars <laughs> it's a remarkable drop in budget between the two how many uh, years later is it 2004 2008 2012 and 2017 the latter two are the animated ones i've had an interesting couple of days is like it like not to <laughs> inside baseball but like we've had to delay this episode a couple of days because of maybe one of us being ill and so in the time in between now and then I've also watched The Scorpion King <laughs> not saying The Scorpion King is on the same level as Star Trek Troopers in terms of like subversion of its source material or like actual like heft behind the camera in terms of like Paul Verhoeven's one of the, the great directors of kind of the last 25 years for doing these kind of blockbuster movies but it's interesting that I've watched two movies that beget massive like direct DVD franchises yeah i mean there's there's some degree of appeal here for the like i mean like i said when i was like 12 13 14 i was like sincerely like fuck yeah shoot the bugs (laughs) and stuff like that and that it has picked up some popularity in japan and that there are animated follow-ups and stuff like that there is some form of audience for the people that actually genuinely want to see them schlockily fire weapons at bug alien things and that is the big thing you know we're, we're sort of 
of glossing over it, but yeah, well, no, you you established it at the time. Film is like massively critically rejected. People take it as a straight up. They're trying their hardest to make a new Alien film or just a sincere sci-fi action thing, yeah, and like, they're not. <laughs> Look at the nudity and violence in this thing. This is definitely being aimed at 13-year-old boys. There's nothing more electoral on its mind. And there's this just mass rejection from everyone. Like, you've got people just completely panning it, calling it, like, just absolute schlock. I don't think it's nominated for any Razzies, but, like, it, it definitely isn't, like, held up as, a as like, a critical favourite of, of the 90s. And yet, in, like, the last 25 years, I feel like it, this has had, like, this huge critical rehabilitation where like now it is seen as one of the best movies of the 90s and i think it is because it is such a sneaky impressive political satire it's so on the money about so much stuff that probably wasn't actually quite true at the time they did it like god i don't even know what it's from one of the various sorkinisms but it's like we've got a war with a logo and theme music which popped up following 9-11 and like this fucking what's it called like the info net or whatever and and the like you want no more yeah yeah all of that like they literally have a fucking logo and theme music and they're like now to the war this is exactly kind of how it's presented and all of that coverage and that the way it's all presented and, and packaged up for propaganda is so prescient and yeah i i think when you watch it as an adult especially like even like from the first scene there's like five of these little info net cutaways that I counted and right from the beginning from like I'm doing my part a little kid was like I'm doing my part and they all just like turn and like laugh and like ha 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 as there's like 20 soldiers that's the thing is like there's all there's all those kind of things like there's the, the dramatic overacting in these scenes the fact that they're just handing guns to children that makes it so obvious <laughs> they're like taking the piss out of all this just the complete lack of opposing side like the thing that I love about this movie and I think it is probably the thing that goes over so many people's heads in terms of like Paul Verhoeven makes this too good of a fascist recruitment film in a lot of ways in that you kind of have to intuit what the actual flip side of this you can tell that this planet is probably full of like conscientious objectors to this war but because the military are like sponsoring the schools and they're putting soldiers in to be their teachers Mm. like you are just brainwashing a future generation of children to be so apt that they need to need to join the army as soon as they graduate even though they've got a perfectly viable like educational path in front of them but like another thing that like they preempt I mean I don't know I I assume to I, I don't live in America but I pick up on this stuff through you know we watch all of the the shows and the movies they probably have always recruited kids straight out of school but i feel it is something that has seen a dramatic uptick in the last 20 30 years is the military basically treating high schools as recruitment camps and they're like hey fucking join the army kids it's it's all i remember because i went to a school that had a military attachment to it it wasn't okay military school but we definitely had like combined forces and stuff like that and you could you you'd signed up to be with a with a particular run for a particular year in school and the amount of kids that i knew who i don't know if it was because like a lot of military brats went there and like their parents were in the military and so therefore like it was just a natural thing but like i know far more people from that school who have joined the military post-education that in any other walk of my life it was going to university that was kind of like my first oh you didn't have like 10 percent of your school year join the army after (laughs) and it's that weird thing where i'm not saying that like it was it was brainwashing because obviously like i i hung out with my bunch of like leftist people who like were kind of like constantly scratching their heads at like all the weirdness around us but it was that weird feeling of like i think you are preying on impressionable people with a version of military service that is not accurate giving 15 year old guns and letting them run around the field is exactly like, <laughs> like something that is cool or yeah cool. and like you can see it in the movie they're all super fucking pumped to join and like the night before they're gonna ship out they're all drinking and, and laughing and it's very we'll be home by christmas from the war and then they all just get fucking slaughtered on their first deployment and it becomes very clear that when they make jokes about fresh meat for the grinder they fucking mean it you're a warm body to hold a rifle and they deploy you straight out of boot camp into a live war it's obviously not the first time that someone has made that joke but like yeah like it's all about the warm bodies and like there is a reason why the enemies are bugs and it's like Mm. we're really not that different like that's so like that's the best part about it like he Verhoeven is openly like yeah you just make them bugs and you can make any movie you want basically (laughs) like if you just swap the bugs for like brown people suddenly they are like preventing this movie from being released because it's too polite 
politically dangerous. <laughs> but like you just make them scary bugs that want to kill everyone and suddenly everything's cool. And like even to that point, there is a brief mention. There's a journalist right at the beginning of the movie who you then see him again an hour later. Like he's giving a report, he dies, it's all going wrong. Flashback a year and we'll meet back here in an hour. There's like a brief suggestion from him at one point. Oh, yeah, some have said that us invading the bugs' native environment is what made them hostile, and it's just completely brushed off with, like, I say, kill them all. <laughs> it's like, yeah. ah, look, the prescient detail in all of this stuff, where America are almost always the aggressors. That's the thing, is, like, it, it's such an indictment of not only American foreign policy, because it, it very much applies to Britain's foreign policy as well, it's just America is yes. such the poster child of this kind of thing. But it, it's such a good tool where, like, it just really gets you in that mindset where like it, it isn't surprising when you hear that like they're watching Lenny Riefenstahl movie. they're watching Triumph of the Will when they're like prepping this movie because they want to make it feel like that kind of like propaganda that jingoistic we're going to be recruiting these people and so all you get as the other side of it is these little it is the journalist it is like you have to sit there and go like wait are they saying that this giant asteroid has made it across the entire galaxy and has hit Buenos Aires and killed a population thing even though we saw it like five minutes ago hanging around outside the outside Jupiter obviously there's not much more text to the movie but like it definitely could put that reading in the movie that like oh have they just destroyed and killed millions of people so they can have an experience excuse to start this war which is more so than just little skirmishes where they're annoyed that native people exist in a place that they're trying to ransack for for supplies and for for raw materials yeah it doesn't at all sound like something that's happened in real life over and over (laughs) again we very much launched fully into it here so let's just backtrack a bit so as as you say paul verhoeven you know most famous for directing robocop in the 80s his 90s also included total recall basic instinct and showgirls like fucking a quite frankly (laughs) to paul verhoeven Edward Neumeyer, obviously. His career has basically been writing Robocop and Starship Troopers and all of their sequels, and I think an Anaconda sequel and nothing else. And so Verhoeven bounces after Starship Troopers 1. Neumeyer stays on board as a producer and writer for, like... I don't know if he wrote... Yeah, I think he did. I think he wrote Starship Troopers 1, 2, and 3 and one of the animated films, and he produced all of them, and I think he directed the third film. So, like, he's all in on Starship Troopers. He's the equivalent of Bob Gale for the Back to the Future franchise, where, like, Robert Zemeckis has, like, washed his hands of it, doesn't have anything to do with it anymore, and Bob Gale is sat there the entire time going, like, yeah, this is my franchise, I'm going to be in charge of anything that anyone does with Back to the Future in the, in the world now. Like, you want a ride? You want an endorsement? I'm there. So, I I have not watched any of them, but because I'm a journalist, I've read Wikipedia summaries of all of the plots of Starship Troopers 2, 3, 4, and 5. All that I remember is that two features somebody dying and criticising the war, and then the protagonist, who is pregnant or has had a kid, goes to some ceremony to honour him, and they've changed his last words to be ones to use for a recruitment campaign, and that's bad so just way more on the nose than starship troopers one and then three is like and someone high up in the human leadership is being controlled by the brain bug from this movie and there's suggestion that the brain bug deliberately letting itself get captured so it could infiltrate human leadership and the human like adopts their religion and then at the end of the movie they're like hmm it was interesting how religion helped brainwash people let's adopt religion into the federation it's like starship troopers one is not i mean it is subtle but like by comparison the two and three sound just just saying the thing that you're trying to do <laughs> out yeah, loud I mean, at the end there is there is a very specific skill that Paul Verhoeven has and you have to assume that is because he is quite literally a man who like lived through Nazi occupied Holland yes yes and and that can't be gotten away from and like he made a film called like Soldier Orange I think if you translate it from Dutch um, that some I think in the Netherlands people were like oh it's just that in space because it's like very much about how war separates a friendship group and then they will find each other again at various points throughout the war and blah 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 but as far as I can tell the animated ones are more just straight up let's just kill some fucking bugs and like some people get framed for something they didn't do and yeah, they're, they're both anime aren't they they both yeah, feel yeah. like Earth Defense Force yeah exactly just like... and the big seller for the fifth one is that they got Dina Meyer to come back even though it, Dizzy very much is dead in this movie 
Rico like hallucinates her at one point of the movie. So like they get Casper Van Dien back for Starship Troopers three, which is live action, and then he produces the first animated film, and then he lends his voice to Rico again in the fifth one. And they also get Dina Meyer back, and the two of them have like a twenty minute section of the movie, as far as I can tell. But it should have just been left where it was. <laughs> like it's a unique thing in film history, and to have spawned four sequels and a shitty game, and allegedly because everything is being remade they are looking at remaking starship troopers and will be much closer to the book which just sounds like nightmare fuel yeah Yeah, i I do not understand why like we had this text where i watched the movie a couple days before you did and i literally text you in the start of this and go and when we really need more adaptations of things where someone is like actively hostile Yeah, fuck it. I don't want a loving recreation of Watchmen panel for panel. I want somebody who fucking hates Watchmen to show me at length why they hate it. But you couldn't, because Watchmen rules. But too much, like, faithful adaptation, and it's almost like, what's the point? You're basically just saying that other mediums are inferior and everything should be turned into a film for Western palettes. And it's like, eh, no. But do something with the material. And, like, I don't think you can get a more radical departure from source material than Starship Troopers. If you're looking for that, you're more looking at things like adaptation. <laughs> yeah. Again, that kind of thing where, like, it's someone going insane whilst trying to adapt an unadaptable book. Like, I want that. Yeah. Behind. Yeah, listen Thank to you. volume one of the podcast. Because, of course, there have been people for years basically saying, no, no, the filmmaker's misunderstood the book. Like, he's not right-wing at all. He's libertarian. And I'm just like, that's the same thing. A thing that they are accused of is whitewashing. Juan Rico is turned into Johnny Rico. They all still live in Buenos Aires, but they are all blonde-haired, blue-eyed, beautiful people. And I, you say it. Like, I'm not going to steal your point. I find it insane to accuse this this movie of whitewashing. I understand it's an issue that came up years ago when Feminist Frequency were doing their series on, on video games and how it's literally just making a list of all the times that you have to save a princess or save a woman from, from some kind of thing. I understand there might be some examples in there that subvert that trope, but the sheer amount of them is problematic. And like I'm sure if you went out there and went, like, here's all the things where we have whitewashed a book or made a role white when in when it was originally kind of more ethnically ambiguous, you could probably stack Starship Troopers. But ultimately, I feel like it's the entire point of this movie that it is a bunch of blonde-haired, blue-eyed people living in, in Buenos Aires. Like, it, it is supposed to be, on one flip side of it, the Aryan race has won, and they've taken over the entire world. And on the flip side of it, it's well known that a lot of Nazis fled to Argentina after World War II. And yeah. I think that is what Verhoeven is going for, where he's basically going like, yeah, the Nazis just took Argentina, and in this, like, perfect world order, it just, just become like a, a Nazi stronghold, essentially. And you end up with Neil Patrick Harris wearing full-on fucking SS. Like, he's literally just a Nazi officer when he gets promoted to, like, high command. And it's it's never more on the nose than that. But, like, yeah, of course these are all fucking beautiful, <laughs> blonde-haired, blue-eyed children. It's just the fact that you have people watching this movie at the time going, like, ha-ha, lol, do they understand that they've made them all look like Nazis? Like, yes. <laughs> they very much do. <laughs> Can we make them look 10% more like Nazis? was <laughs> probably something that constantly happened. Um, some that helps them get this movie made the way it is Sony is going through a lot of upper management turmoil at the time they're making it so by the time they see any footage it's basically done and you have to imagine if they present it to them and they're like yeah so the Nazis then most producers are like hmm what are we trying to say about America wow (laughs) so I think that freedom helps a great deal and I just I really truly hope that the cast understand the movie they made but I could fully see Casper Van Dien being like, no, yeah, it's great, I kill bugs. I'm not saying they deliberately cast bad actors, (laughs) but it does seem like the only two fucking adults are Michael Ironside and Clancy Brown, who fucking crush it, and everyone else is kind of a bit shit. So two points. I heard a story when they were getting funding that apparently they did like a, a CGI test with the, um, it's the scene where they're like killing the cow in the movie, in the, um, in the frame shots. Uh, all, all like the wraparound um, journalism pieces or whatever like yeah, when they yeah, killed yeah. the cow apparently Paul Verhoeven walked out in front of it and said like who wants to give me money to fund this movie <laughs> like, 
It's just part of like a CGI test. It's like, I'm not going to tell them what the plot is. I'm just going to show them what kind of cool special effects we can do. <laughs> Great if that is actually true. Then on the flip side of it, they 100% like, I read that they apparently were looking to hire actual like 15, 16, 17 year olds. Yes, like, I also read this. He wanted age appropriate characters. <laughs> and then obviously, because I have to assume that someone caught whiff of this and was like, no, no not allowed. Don't do this. <laughs> for the next best thing which i think is another ingenious stroke of this movie is almost everyone who's in this movie is someone that would fit really well into like a dawson's creek or every two i know like let's let's not cast good actors let's cast people who would do teen tv shows because yes they are like almost 30 years old but if you put enough makeup on them they kind of look they squint like their early 20s and that's why they're a little bit shit because they're all a little bit hammy they don't have that world weariness but it just kind of adds to the feeling that like again it feels so on purpose because it feels like a propaganda movie because if you watch these things that people make that are just so thoroughly propaganda pieces you don't have good actors no they, they <laughs> the bottom of the barrel that they can pick from and so it is all these people who can't deliver a line it's very similar to the boogie nights idea of like <laughs> and again i think it's different in that in that movie you've got good actors playing bad acting and in this movie you've got not so great actors doing exactly what they need to do to push forward the tone of the movie and you know who turned down the part of johnny rico who mark Wahlberg. he's probably too old yeah like casper van Dien is like Look, he's given it a good earnest try, but he's like so, so, so bad. Never is he worse than the funeral scene where he's having to like bark in a military tone kind of thing and take a leadership role. It's like, oh, you're not good at this. Like, he's fine as like golden retriever boy who gets a medal and is like grinning ear to ear and is like hopelessly in love with a lady who thinks he's just okay kind of thing <laughs> and failing to recognize that Diz is in turn in love with him and he just thinks she's okay. And like Denise Richards, like, I think you said this is the closest she comes to acting or being a good actor. Neil Patrick Harris giving probably the only decent performance of the young cast. Oh, yeah, Neil Patrick Harris gives an energy to this, and I have to assume it's because he is the most experienced actor of mm. the young cast in terms of it. Like, he has done all of Dougie House at this point. He's a couple years out. He's obviously about to hit his, like, fallow period where, like, he really doesn't do anything until he comes back in with that, like, it's ironic, because I'm, like, ironically Neil Patrick Harris that Harris him through, like, the next 15 years of his career, essentially, until he's now basically, like, I'm your fun gay dad. I, I love that they refer to him as Dougie Himmler. Yes, so good. How they got away with that one. Like, if you take that out, it's still very Nazi-ish. But when he just trots out in the full-length, like, leather duster or whatever, it's like, oh my god. Like, a, a subplot of the film is, like, some people are telepathic for some reason. And he's practicing his telepathy and he can manipulate a ferret. He says he cannot manipulate humans. However, he does psychically tell Johnny Rico to go and find Carmen. Now, my interpretation of that is Rico is so fucking dumb, he basically classifies as an animal for the purposes of telepathy. No, it's, it's my interpretation of that is, like, any time you're watching, like, the, the propaganda films that they play during this, it adds a little bit of energy where it's like, ooh, do they have psychics making these adverts? Like, are these uh, not okay. like, what they were doing in Nazi Germany and, like, with, with the obsession with film, but they're also doing this thing where, like, they're doing Hypnotoad from Futurama. Like, <laughs> it's designed to, like, drill in into your brain and make you think in a certain way. One of the DVDs for one of the seasons of Futurama contains a 22-minute episode of Everybody Loves Hypnotoad, and it's impressive that they actually put something together that lasts that long. I have to imagine it's not that hard, though. Like, they just take the 10-second loop from the episode. And they no, just... they, there's, there's, like, stuff. There's, like, a laugh track out of nowhere, and, like, we will return after these messages, and then there's fake adverts and, like, all of that stuff. They, they try and make it more than just... The Hypnotoad for 22 minutes. I just imagine it as like those YouTube videos that's like 10 hours of this. Sure, sure. Which I'm sure exists for Hypnotoad. It's a cast with barely a recognisable person in it. A lot of them, like, I will forever know who Casper Van Dien is because of this movie. Denise Richards obviously was very famous for being very attractive for quite a few years. All of these people have kind of like maybe a couple of years just after this where they're like something but like Casper Van Dien does Sleepy Hollow a couple of years after this like he is obviously feels that he's big enough to reject doing the sequel to <laughs> the this the first sequel yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 
then when that turns out that's not true, he's right back in for the third one. His career is, is a complete mess at this point, but there's there was obviously a point where like both him and Denise Richards are probably the big ones. She does a Bond movie two years after this. Is she a cameo or is she like an actual character? I forget. Where... <sighs> she's the hot one that someone ends up with at the end. I don't really remember. Yeah, like she's obviously got enough heft, and obviously, I mean, it's part of that thing where like we're saying where we're talking about Drew Barrymore, where like her fame is almost more tabloidy. Yeah. Of like attractive people, married to Charlie Sheen, all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but her movie career definitely kind of like dies like a hard death after after she does Bond. Pretty much, like she's not really in anything that you'd feel comfortable kind of like telling someone that like, oh yeah, I love. And again, that's why that's why I texted you and said like, I think Denise Richards is legitimately good in this. And I don't. And I have to assume it's like Paul Verhoeven. Mm her skills very well where she is someone who could do one thing particularly well and it's just not something that you would necessarily use her for multiple times in her career like she is not a romantic lead in a lot of ways she's a lot better as this kind of like steely-eyed ingenue who just wants to be a fascist she is the one that gives the answer in Michael Hansard's class of like what did the people of Hiroshima think about non-violence it's like don't know they're all dead bitch it's like oh my god <laughs> That's not the line, but it might as well be. Can we do a little bit more background before we jump <laughs> into the plot? Because I have sure. to say about that, shut that classroom. <laughs> There's a lot, isn't it? They, they pack a lot into those five minutes. So, obviously released November 97. We went over the budget, 105 million. Pretty expensive for a film at the time. Makes 121 million, so a huge box office failure. I would have to imagine in some way, shape or form it's made money over the years from that critical reevaluation and being on TV so much and stuff. Like yeah, this is another this one that I've I, I had on tape and like, yeah, watch this twenty times. So domestically overall it only grosses fifty five million dollars. So yeah, as you said, like a huge, huge dud in the US. Obviously it creeps across its its total total goal in it worldwide, but you just because you have to ship out some different things, they probably didn't see a lot of that money coming from international markets. So like when they do make sequels, you have to imagine it's probably made it into the black at some point in the last decade if they are going to give Star Trek Troopers or Greenlight Star Trek Troopers 2 and Star Trek Troopers 3. And that has to be because it's hitting just at that point where DVD is coming in yeah. and it, all those like classic early DVD movies are things like The Matrix and it's like those, who are the first, who are the early adopters? Well, they're the fucking nerds and neckbeards who like science fiction and, and horror and stuff like that. They're the ones who are going to support this new franchise if you don't, or this new medium. And if you don't have them on board then you're fucked, essentially. I love that we host a podcast and, and pejoratively call other people nerds but no yeah it's definitely a movie for like look at the frame rate look at all these bugs look at how many guns you can see firing on screen at once kind of thing yeah um, but yeah I mean, should, we, should we do opening weekend box office yes how did it do like i believe it did okay in weekend one and then critical reception destroys any word of mouth it might have how was it yeah, in its worst weekend? first couple of weekends are good like i mean r-rated movie opening 28 2 million dollars on 2000 screens like it's actually doing really well on that first weekend opening up against other new releases mad city and eve are you but at number six and number eight in terms of the top five we've got bean everyone's favorite rowan atkinson movie yes i know what you did last summer the devil's advocate and red corner in at number seven is boogie nights hey which uh, obviously we just covered last week uh, obviously massively improving after it's opening at number 19 when we covered that so not quite the peak of that movie i think it was number four the weekend before this but like it's definitely like now i'm picking up something but yeah Star Trek troopers does well in its opening weekend it drops 50 percent in its second weekend to to 10 million which is kind of normal in nowadays but like was a huge drop in the 90s and then by its third weekend it's number seven with another 50% drop and basically like it's it's been a limp its way to 50 million at that point. I think there was an attempt to like encourage young teenage boys to buy tickets to Bean and then just go watch Starship Troopers and then like word got out this was happening and it got stamped right out but there was a huge enthusiasm for teenage boys to go and see it because of course there is. It's fucking aliens and guns and there's tits a couple of times. <laughs> like you know what you're getting from Paul Verhoeven. He really catered to that market of, of, of kids seeing things they shouldn't have a little bit too young. Like, everyone remembers the first time they saw, like, the real Robocop. <laughs> like, oh my god, what's happening to that man? It's one of those weird ones where it's like, it's part of that 80s trend of, like, 
here is a R-rated, massively violent movie that we're going to do a toy line for and market it at children. Yeah, because, like, while you're marketing it to adults, like, kids are going to see posters and, and trailers, even if they're not allowed to see the real thing. And there is some level of appeal there. And they're like, hmm, what if we just completely neutered this down? Like, I think there were, like, alien toys back in the day and, and all sorts of shit like that. Yeah, for sure. And Ghostbusters isn't actually really appropriate for kids and becomes this massively popular children's fantasy. But Verhoeven, the master, willing to direct in the nude. <laughs> My favourite stories from this is because, I mean, obviously, it's not only is that scene kind of ingenious in terms of the fact that it's basically like you've got a whole bunch of young testosterone and estrogen driven like teenagers in a room and stuff like that. And so your brain's kind of going, like, well, they'd be fucking all the time. Like, <laughs> when you like put it all together. But, like, they are so fully focused on war and killing these bugs that, like, they are having co-ed showers together and no one's batting an eyelid, everyone's naked and stuff like that. It's this fantastic kind of, like, subtextual moment of, like, we're just going to flagrantly have the nudity and have it be un as, like, unsexualized as possible. Yeah. Like, I of wish they could have gotten away with showing some penis. I think, like... I think, it, I think the footage is there. Like, if you hear Casper Van Dien tell it, like, yep, 100% fully naked on camera. But it's like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's exactly fully naked, but like all the blocking is done in that Austin Powers style way, where yeah, like yeah, yeah. holding things or like it's framed in such a way that there's like a, the shower head is blocking someone else's penis in the background. But I think uh, there was an intent by Verhoeven to get away with full on penis, but I think they were like, oh, I've seen Showgirls. <laughs> I've seen L. He is not a man to shy away from sexuality and sex when he needs to. Yeah, he says this about the scene that, like, you know, Americans get so fucking upset by nudity, but you can show a corpse full of bullet holes and you can do this, that, and the other, but as soon as a, a boob comes out, it's like, oh, God, no. That scene... You know, I, I flippantly reference it. He and, I guess, the director of cinema photography. Joseph Carno, who was raised in a nudist. Yes. <laughs> a nudist they, so <laughs> they directed that scene together nude. And the reason for that is not an HR actionable thing, but rather because he wanted them all to be naked. And they were like, oh, I don't know. Like, we'll do it if you do. And he just completely called their bluff and they just got naked immediately because he's not a fucking prude. And he's like, yeah, fuck it, I'll be naked. I don't give a shit. And they're all naked in the showers. <laughs> it is funny how uh, incredibly puritanical America is in certain ways and not others. But I mean, there's, yeah. there's a reason why Verhoeven, he makes one more movie after this in, in Hollywood, which isn't a good movie. Hollow Man is not like, it, it's a mm. fantastic special effects showcase but it is not a good movie and then after that he retreats back to to the european european film and now he's made a rape revenge filler which is like one of the most controversial movies of the last decade and then he's obviously got his lesbian a medieval nun movie coming out in a couple of weeks hell yeah yes he said i've i haven't seen any sex scenes in american film that are anything other than completely boring and he's not wrong like especially if you look at where things went after this the last 10 years especially and to be completely fair to him the scene where rico and diz fuck which she's taking her shirt off and he like stops her from taking it fully off and it's like a blindfold type thing probably the hottest thing teenage matt had ever seen for several years <laughs> and then it's like yeah okay this guy knows what he's doing but let us talk about the goddamn movie which as i said right from the beginning hits you with one of those propaganda montages cuts to like oh shit it's all going wrong cuts back a year we see rico etc in school and my god michael ironside's history slash politics class is quite something the way that this movie plays it where like no one is reacting to the thing that he's saying because they're all completely normal is what makes it so much more horrifying because like could you imagine your teacher standing up in front of you and basically telling you a screed about like how you need to go and murder and like kill all these like foreigners yes like, genuinely terrifying the things that he's saying but the movie's got this energy and and again it's, it's back to that like let's cast actors who look like they'd be in a teen teen tv show and it's like it wouldn't feel out of place in beverly, beverly hills 902 or no but except if you just had your teacher coming out in front and the class basically starts something for genocide <laughs> What's the exact quote? Something given has no value, but when you vote, you're exercising political authority. You're using force, and force, my friends, is violence, the supreme authority from which all other authorities derive. Okay. <laughs> That's one take on life. 
Oh, here we go. Correct. Naked force has resolved more issues throughout the world history than any other factor. The contrary opinion that violence never solves anything is wishful thinking and it's worst. Like, yeah. People try to argue that like they misinterpreted the meaning of the book and it's like all of this is nakedly right there. Like Robert Heinlein said it's, it's that, a nakedly pro-military book. Yeah. He he said that when he served, he observed how lazy civilians were. And then you get this entire giant plot device of citizenship being something that like society revolves around. You are not born a citizen, you become one through military service. And I, there, I think there are other ways, but the main one is some form of military service. And, you know, you see to the point where like one of them's accepted into Harvard, one of them wants to go into politics, something else as well. And it's like, they're not allowed to do any of that until they become a citizen. And it's yeah, like... I can't, I'm doing my military service because I can't be a politician until I've done my military service yeah. is like, <laughs> truly chilling to, to basically say. And like Rico's dad is like critical of all of this and like the subtext that Carmen's parents don't like Rico because he and his family aren't citizens. <laughs> it's like, what the fucking hell is Even this? though like, and the best thing is like, it, it doesn't seem to stop your social mobility. They are rich, they own a nice house they're sending their son to Harvard, like, it doesn't impact, like, intellectual prog progress or, like, monetary progress. But there is this, it, it, it's, again, it's that weird thing where it's like, it, because it's such a nakedly anti-military movie, but, like, nakedly pro-context for everything going on inside it, like, you really don't have any context behind what the difference is between a citizen and a, just a civilian. There is no context behind it other than the fact that, like, the citizens get to choose who is the political, the people in charge of the politics. Mm -hmm. And so, up with this like fascistic dictatorial military leadership i mean like even in the movie like they talk about like when in history we talked about the failure of democracy how the social scientists of the 21st century brought our world to the brink of chaos and like okay, <laughs> democracy fuck that we're done with that we're now up to <laughs> the military failure to have anything and then you get like that first assault that they have on Mandafu where it goes so spectacularly wrong that they have this like ceremony where they strip the I assume like the president or like just general of the sky marshal they're called yeah, yeah. So they, they strip the sky marshal of his position and just replace him with another <laughs> it's wild and the movie just presents it so barefacedly and you're just supposed to like go along with it and if you put any thought into it it's like this is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The most haunting one of them that I forgot momentarily, one of them wants to have children and you can't get a license unless you're a citizen, which calls into question how Rico's parents have him. I don't know if his mum is a citizen and his dad isn't or something, or if you can have a child without a license or I, I don't know. But there's, there's all kinds of stuff in this movie that feels like just terrifying and also kind of like predicting where the world's going to go. Like Edward Newmyer plays the guy who is sentenced to death on television television and like tune in on every channel we love to watch people get published publicly punished i could 100 percent see that being I, I don't think any anywhere in america does broadcast death row and like like people being publicly executed but you can go visit people be executed if you really want to well didn't this happen with saddam hussein's execution wasn't there like youtube footage or some shit i don't know again it feels like the kind of thing that like we're not that far away from someone going like you know what would be cool if we just had a tv channel that showed public executions yeah and like rico's dad talks about being lashed before like rico gets whipped for like his responsibility in a in a, in a cadet's death in training but 20 minutes before that rico's dad is like oh i'd rather be lashed than do this so, so it's like implying that lashings are like a public event that people can go and watch as well and like this this obsession with punishment and like yeah kill them all kind of thing yeah i mean i, mean, I love that verhoven manages to be a little bit subversive even during the flogging scene where like who is doing the flogging of rico well it's a huge fucking hedge black man <laughs> yeah <laughs> Again, like he, all of the all of the criticism is so subtle that I can see why people would watch this movie and take it at face value. I just think that you're really like the only way I can think about you doing that to this movie is if you go in thinking it's it's nothing more than being aimed at fifteen year old boys. Mm -hmm. And like you know, when they all join up for the federation, they make they have to say this big long pledge, and it it looks ridiculous to you and I. 
And then you think, oh wait, Americans actually have to do that every day in school and pledge allegiance to the fucking flag in the corner of the room. Yeah, they give this this big oath and they join up and off they go to their separate divisions. Rico's going to be mobile infantry and Carmen wants to be a pilot. And, and that's, shockingly, she actually gets a subplot that she has a career ambition that she cares about more than a man. And didn't, I'm going to surprise you, test audiences didn't like that she had career ambitions. I was going to say, like, didn't they cut out most of Xander's scenes, didn't they? Was the whole issue. Was that, she like, was supposed to be genuinely torn between the two. And test audiences didn't like that idea. So it had to become like, eh, she kind of is a little bit flirty with Xander, but she loves Johnny. It's like, no, like Johnny's her fucking high school boyfriend and Xander's an adult man who's helping her and become a pilot. Why the fuck would she stay with Johnny Rico? Yeah, I mean, I can eat. All of this stuff is so good. Like this, this general tone of like, look how fun everything is. And then like in this early part of the movie, it's just these like shocking moments of violence. It's mm. the guy going up to Clancy Brown, who, as you said, is like, he's so <laughs> fucking good in this movie and being like, I think I can take him down, sir. And then having his arm broken in the most horrific way possible. Yeah. And that's the thing. It, it, it's, you're getting this sort of biting, prescient social commentary stuff and all the propaganda and all of this. There's also this massive camp factor and like tonal dissonance where that whole scene is done in a you can see a scene like that happening in another war movie where like a drill instructor like goes too far and you have the grim music and it's raining and everything's solemn this is treated as a fucking comedy moment where he just horrifically breaks a dude's arm who is later seen in like a little water cast thing and is completely fine and then him and Dizzy have like a street fighter standoff for a second and he chokes her out and it's just it's just so I think that really helps make it is when they're in school, the comically over-the-top autopsy of the bug and Carmen wanting to puke while their blind professor harps on about how good insects are at adapting. I love that whole section. I think I think particularly like them going through training together is actually genuinely really good. And like seeing them all bond as a little group, a little unit who are just so raucous when he's trying to send video messages to Carmen and Carmen breaks up with him via video message. And my favourite is they're doing training exercises with live ammo right next to where people are just doing the fucking monkey parts. And of course someone gets their head shot off in comical fashion. And then they dismiss the person that fired, but Johnny, despite admitting it's his fault, is kept and lashed. And it's like, that feels like another sort of subtle dig at how all these things go. It's like, oh, we'll keep him. He shows promise. We must make sure he becomes a murderous soldier. He shows some remorse, but also he's a good soldier. And he was like, it's just so well pitched, all of this stuff. I, I... Of that, like you start to think that this movie's going to be like a bog standard. Like when we know how military movies and stuff like that go, where like if they're if they're going to go for a comedic thing, there's normally like some tension, there's normally some rivalry and stuff like that. And you think Jake Busey's going to be that when he shows up. Yeah, it's kind of like ten seconds of being a foil, and then immediately he's like, they're all buddy buddy, and like, no, these are the best friends you're ever going to make. Join the fucking mobile infantry. <laughs> Get like, tattoos together. Yeah, like exactly. Like it, it basically just becomes like this is your family. They will support you. Look at this. This is the best time. Yes, bad things happen like other people get shot in the head or you might have a knife thrown at your arm. (laughs) It's all so well pitched. And then, as we've kind of been hinting, we basically get to like what Denise Richards manages to dodge a giant asteroid, just destroys Buenos Aires and... This is like the the trigger that basically means that we're now at war. Like we're we're done with these little skirmish fights. Where like, because that's the thing is like, there's all this all this tension around the bugs, and you don't realize that they're not actually at war with the bugs. They're literally just dipping into foreign yeah. territory, stealing resources, and having these having these skirmishes. Or like, or like you you have all these like there's religious pilgrims who have like settled in these in these different spaces, and like they're being murdered by the bugs, and they're being told off for doing it. And it's all this all this stuff is hanging around the edge, and like. All they're doing is they're just brainwashing the citizens or brainwashing the the kids into basically hating these things. So when the the fire is ignited, everyone is all fucking in. It's funny that that happened in real life (laughs) and how a generation of people hate people from the Middle East. 
that they're not even at war until uh, until that moment. And Johnny, like, he takes his whipping for his responsibility and uh, for a guy getting his head shot off. But then his parents are in Buenos Aires, and Buenos Aires is wiped off the map. And he's like, right, I'm fucking all in. And they fucking tear up his papers where he was going to quit. Another example of military corruption that, like, he's got the stomach for it, and he's a good, obedient boy. So he's like the ideal soldier. Um, Doesn't look like your signature. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then they're off to war and they think they're going to have a really fun, great time and they get absolutely fucking slaughtered. And I love how many bullets it takes to put down one bug. It happens a few times. They are just unloading into these things and there's that guy that like gets absolutely covered in goo and then he's like, yeah, that was good. <laughs> before they even ship out, they're screaming into camera like, just hope it's not over before we get some and stuff like that. And then the harsh reality slamming in their head faces where it's, they just get slaughtered and they get taken in as, as new recruits of the Roughnecks who are who are led by Michael Ironside, who one arm and all has, has signed back up and they are the elite kill squad and god damn it Michael Ironside like I, I think in the book these are two separate roles the like militant teacher and the legendary leader of the roughnecks they just become the same person and I just think that's again another fantastic linking there Rico just rises up through the ranks by being the good little right hand man is reported killed in action lives they all laugh and show him he's dead it's like haha look you're dead ha it's so good and then it does start to descend into that period where it's just kind of like a straight up tension and like they've been lured into a trap because it turns out the bugs are smarter than everyone thought and there's even that debate on the news like a bug with a brain I find that offensive (laughs) and stuff like that and they get lured into a trap and it turns into like a Riddick movie for 10 minutes where they're they're like holding down the fort. Just a quick note on how technically impressive all of that is yeah yeah. Like the, the amount of bugs that are on screen apparently they had to develop a new method where like there's only kind of like five or six bugs like the ones that are moving they're the only ones that are actually like fully 3d rendered every other one is like a a pixel art from a video game Mm -hmm. they've taken a 2d image and they just plant them all in the background but it looks so effective because they managed to actually like nail the lighting and everything like that that actually like comes away like you we have both seen so much shitty cgi that comes out later than this having this movie is taking the care to like make sure that everything is like working properly just makes me like it's 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 just a little nod where like again like it's it's that mix of practical and CGI that we, we were hopping on about during Jurassic Park but like he is using it to like a, a great effect and I, again I wish we were more at this stage where like we weren't making movies 95% CGI you look at the behind the scenes of something like Endgame and you're like there's like three rocks and everything else. It's really depressing, isn't it? Every shred of behind the scenes on Endgame, I want to see it less. I'm like, oh no, you were all just in this tiny little room with a rock and it's nothing. None of this is real. And then yeah. this is like, they actually, where, where is it they film it? They film it in like, um, is Arizona or? It's somewhere that they refer to as. They, they filmed it all in Wyoming in, in all's half acre, which is like all this like rocky badland stuff, which looks, again, it looks so good. And you got like Jake Busey, part passing out from heat stroke and treating people every day they're treating people for heat stroke and all of this and you know it sucks for them but it looks great and <laughs> I, I think the like the outpost nine stuff I think is genuinely great and it's like oh god when did this become like a tense military movie it's the kind of stretch towards the end of like I get it you're I get the journey you're going for here like you know Rico lets go of Carmen Rico finally has sex with Diz Diz has to die because she had sex in a sci-fi or horror movie Diz says the most depressing line I've ever heard in a film of like it's okay because I got to have you and then Rico, you know, loses his friend. He loses his mentor because Michael Ironside dies. He rises up. He becomes leader of the Roughnecks. And then they do this big assault on the brain bug planet and they capture a brain bug. And all three of them are reunited and Carmen saves the day. And Barney, Carl, Carl is his name, is revealed to have, have planned the whole thing. And everything's joyous. And we end in this, like, it's afraid. Yay! And I think that's a fantastic little end. I just how they get from kind of the ramifications of Outpost 9 
to that ending is like really clunky and kind of boring in my opinion but there's so many really great little moments like i love like obviously like rat's check is like kill like kill anyone who's caught by the bugs because it's like a horrible thing and it's like he has his legs bitten off by one of those huge bugs and he's just like kill me now kill me immediately it's like you could probably be saved <laughs> we've seen people come back from like pretty heinous injuries in this movie obviously i understand they don't have like limb rebuilding technology unless it's going to be like a metal limb but like they can fix like a uh, reco being stabbed through the leg by a by a bug and stuff like that. They mm. definitely like stretching the limits of like how much a human can take. Maybe he feels a life not on his own two feet is not a life worth living. Maybe he's like massively ableist despite only having one arm. <laughs> I mean, my, my favorite is the reappearance of Neil Patrick Harris, who is in the early going of this movie set up to be like the comedic best friend, and like he ha- like <laughs> and he becomes like the worst of them all. <laughs> That's the thing is like he is the comedic best friend. Like when when he sees Rico's math score, he like throws up on the screen. It's just like look at this fucking idiot. This is my comedic best friend. He's gonna be the thing that's gonna soften all the all the dramatic tension. And then he fucks off in the movie, and then he comes back and he's just like, yeah, I'm a Nazi now. And also like I sent millions of people to their death. We're in it for the species, boys and girls. Is his big line. It's like holy fucking shit. Yeah, and like, and then like, and then he orchestrates all of this. Like, he wants a brain bug, and but then he also wants all these like little wins to come. From it. Like, he wants them to go save Carmen because I assume it's because they're friends, but also because like it means that they find the brain bug. It's so well orchestrated that it's like it's almost like it's this higher level game of chess that we're not privy to that they don't want to disclose in this propaganda movie. And so instead, what you get is just like look at all these people working in tandem for us to have our first big victory of this war like it's a combined war effort we're all in it together (laughs) yeah exactly like look how good dizzy was in kind of like escaping from their ship and like and all the rest of it and look how good rico was in commanding his unit to come in this and then look how good private zim was in like capturing the brain bug like oh my god but it's his fucking like so when they when they go to war he wants to be enlisted he's like not unless you get busted down to private and then that's exactly what fucking happens at the end and this glorious notion of like any kind of higher leadership is almost a bad thing and the most glorious thing you can do is be a grunt and go and fucking kill people <laughs> Clancy Brown being so fucking good makes me almost like involuntarily be like yeah go Zim like, like, again, yeah, the reading of it is so depressing on the flip side of it like the fact that they're all cheering that they've got this captured and scared bug and they're like yeah we've won that's literally the line they're like it's afraid it's afraid and then they all just uproariously cheer while they try and make it look as cute and scared as possible <laughs> and it's like there's the movie in like five seconds again it's little bits i like i like the brain sucking out scene but i can also understand why you'd be like it becomes almost more like i, d- I d- it, it reminds me of those kind of like final scenes of serenity yeah it just kind of loses its way a bit it's like yeah. you know your emotional beats and here it's less emotion it's more like here's our next opportunity for a dunk kind of thing what's it is it's kind of it's kind of erred away from the fact that like because all of them were separate and you kind of assume that people are going to die but you don't know when and how they're going to die that when you get to this final stretch where it's like it's Carl it's Rico and it's it's Carmen all back together again you're like well none of them are going to die and so you have like Sugar Watkins uh, a <laughs> fantastic name like Seth Gilliam from The Wire blowing himself up with a nuclear <laughs> nuclear bomb yeah yeah and you have like dizzy and xander you have to come up with some bombastic way to get them trapped in the cave and we've seen earlier in the i mean i know they're deliberately letting them live but we see earlier in the film that like it takes three people unloading a full fucking clip to kill one bug and they're surrounded by like 20 bugs and they all they both pick up a gun it's like you are the most optimistic people i've ever seen in my life and then they obviously get to live because the plan is to suck their brains out and all of that shit but like i don't hate it or anything it's just it's it's to me the least interesting section of the film because it almost accidentally becomes the thing it's trying to satirize or it's yeah, just I mean, like think, now we're just we're now we're just making an alien war movie and it's yeah, like i, I like the creature design and all of that that's cool but yeah. It's very much on purpose at this point, but I do get that. Oh, yeah, it, because it becomes what it is. Like, it, it loses that edge where it's like it's more interesting when it's showing the horrors of what war is. Where yeah. whereas yeah. it's like supposed to be like here's the here's the first major victory. Like all the stuff down on Plendathu and on Planet P in that first like the, the first tension built section are supposed to be like look how fucking horrible this is. Whereas this is yeah, it's, it's the victory. How- 
feel about the the movie opening with this with the stuff on Clendathu? And like, then looping back around to it. Yeah, do you like that the movie shows you where we're going to go eventually, or do, would you have preferred if the movie kind of like an hour in is when you get like this first kind of like horrific blast of like what's actually happening? I like the idea that like. <clears throat> You're seeing a news report that you will, and you see some random soldiers in the background, and you see Rico scream into camera, and then you come back to that moment with it happening. I like that in theory. I kind of wish that they'd found a way to hide how badly it was going in that moment. Have you be genuinely shocked when suddenly, oh no, war's horrible, they're all dying, kind of thing. But I don't know how you quite go about achieving that to be honest, without tipping your hand in that opening scene. I, I agree with that. Like, it feels like you could, if it was just the bog-standard news report and they're, like, just reporting on it from from, the, from that opening section, it's it maybe a bit more interesting when they subvert it later on. Maybe you don't show any bug stuff happening. You just have, like, the guy with all the troops and then everyone's turning to look at something you can't see and then, like, the camera drops to the ground or something like that and then you, you show what actually happened later. I, I don't know. But it doesn't break the movie for me, but it's it's fun to almost like try and ignore that scene for a minute and just go from like the propaganda films to the kids in school to the kids signing up and then suddenly, oh God, war's horrible. And then looping back around to, no, war's great. Dying for your country is the best thing you can do. And then have you heard the story of like the guy they hired to be in charge of like the army scenes in the movie? They went to a proper boot camp, all the people who were going to be in this, and they spent a couple of weeks doing this kind of thing. But they also picked two extras to come with them. So, like, the main cast goes there to learn how to do proper army shit. And then there's these two extras who get treated exactly the same and, like, do everything with them. And then when they got back to set, these two extras became, like, squad commanders uh-huh. and were in charge of, like, doing drills with all the other extras and, like, being like being treated like they were actually, like, more important than all the other extras because they were going to be running actual drills in the background of like if every scene um, <laughs> and like if I had apparently like, all the classes like yeah it gave us a re- like we really felt like we were in the military because you have Paul Verhoeven directing the movie and then you have this guy shouting like what they needed to be doing is if they were actually like serving in the military to the side of him yeah. and like this like real edge of like you're young and you're in the military and this is this is how it's actually like i know they made casper van dean like actually run around and and give water to like every single extra at some point <laughs> and like be water boy and stuff and he was like yeah there were like 1400 extras and i probably spoke to every one of them it's like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> it's just great and i think you either get it instantly or you don't and that will completely inform your opinion of the film because it basically starts how it finishes um where they just you know they run one more of the things and it's like no your foe and then stabbing the fucking brain bug with a giant batman censored thing on the screen and then again service guarantees citizenship we need you all they'll keep fighting and they'll win over the course of many films they do not in fact ever categorically win i don't think but you know a great little time capsule of a movie and i love anything like this where people realize years later oh (laughs) i i think as we said like the war on terror and stuff like that really highlighted it and the rise of of fox news and the way society has gone Um, not saying none of that was in place when he made it uh, but it feels incredibly prescient now yeah. And now the most important tangent we're going to go on this episode. Mm-hmm. Power Rangers Lost Galaxy. <laughs> I almost forgot. Yeah. The, I guess because the production was so big, like they had so many extras, they had so much, so many costumes to make. These fucking things cropped up in the pilot of Power Rangers Lost Galaxy. where They're, they're in all... the entire season. It's not I think, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think you do see them. Where like in that season, mankind has gone aboard a big spaceship colony that has been launched into the galaxy to find a new permanent home for people of Earth. And like, they just happen to have this fucking Starship Troopers ass military force with them. I think they're also in Firefly and something else. I think they like modified them for that. So that must have been the last thing they got used on but yeah these these fucking costumes were everywhere because you know they're just good generic futurish military outfits i guess yeah, Th- those I first know. 10 minutes of, of power rangers lost galaxy had me hopeful for a show that didn't exist 
But yeah. like Challenges Lost Galaxy, Firefly, and Planet of the Apes. I think that's the one. Planet of the Apes. Yeah. That use them because everything else is like Starship Troopers three and stuff like that. So if you haven't seen, but yeah, like Firefly, it's like the Alliance costumes are like all like heavily renovated, like Starship Troopers. Just because, like again, we mentioned that there's so many extras in this movie and they all had real fucking costumes. Yeah. So they're just bumping around Hollywood, where like you probably wouldn't have to spend that much money to get a suit of armor from from Starship Troopers. Yeah, and like especially on a production that probably didn't make a lot of money, they probably made some money back by fucking selling these things to other studios and whatnot and sharing them around. So yeah, you you will see. I think the Power Rangers one is the most egregious. We're like, um, is this? It is, isn't it? Yes, this is all just Starship Troopers. Literally the same costumes. Like I think it's it's, it's cool. even on like a dark like quarry. To, it, it it's not the same, but it, it looks vaguely like they are on that asteroid that they're uh, or the moon or whatever it is. I mean, bikes. obviously, I had the opposite reaction because what that season of Power Rangers airs in '99, so about two years after the movie. I'm like seven years old. <laughs> when- watching it and so like when i finally get to watching such troopers i'm like why do these costumes look like power rangers costumes? <laughs> whereas i think i had a vague memory of seeing that show when it was brand new and it probably just i didn't think anything of it and then i saw it again many years later and i was like um why does the <laughs> opening of this season fucking rule <laughs> doesn't quite turn out how you think it will but uh that's to be saved for our power rangers podcast one day but for now we have talked about starship troopers that is episode 70 in the books we are terrifyingly close to the final stretch of volume three a few more stops to go on the road next week one of them will be goodwill hunting I mean, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are back in the box office, baby, with the their crusade movie. No, they're not. They're not back in the movie. Bombed. That was what I was getting at. Anyway, that's next week. Until then, we always leave you with one question. And Benjamin, I will apologize to you now because I stole the obvious joke last week about would you like to know more, etc. But hopefully you've thought of something. So I ask you, will there be movies? I'm from Buenos Aires and I say, watch them all. Bye, everyone.